David French is an attorney, political commentator, and author. A fellow at the National Review Institute and a staff writer for National Review from 2015 to 2019, French currently serves as senior editor of The Dispatch, a fact-based digital media company that aims to provide both sides of any given policy issue. In 2020, he published Divided We Fail, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Today, he will discuss the polarization he studies in his book and why short-term solutions seem improbable. Let's listen in. Well, thanks so much. I, uh, I almost feel like, because I was talking to Tom beforehand, that I should begin with an apology that uh, it's what a dramatic de-escalation in guests because you went from the guy who spearheaded the bin Laden raid to a reserve judge advocate uh, who served in one tour in the surge. Uh, but I'm not here to talk about military policy. Uh, I'm going to talk about our national polarization, um, how bad it's getting, why there aren't any real prospects uh, in the short to medium term for it to get better. Uh, but there are some things that I think we can do in the longer term to turn this thing around. Um, so when I was talking to Tom, he was asking me to sort of lay out why I think we are where we are and what it looks like to be where we are. And, and the impetus for this was a, a Sunday essay I did that said that America is in the grips of a fundamentalist revival. It's just not a Christian fundamentalist revival. And it was spawned by a reaction uh, that I'd had to a tweet where I said, I don't think you can really understand this political moment unless you've either been a part of or been um, very familiar with fundamentalist religious communities. And the reason why I said fundamentalist is because uh, we've often heard people describe now, well, politics is like a religion to some people or pop culture is like a religion to some people. But I don't think that describing something as a religion actually does justice to the intensity of what we're talking about now. Because there are a lot of different religious people in this country who have a lot of different demeanors. Uh, some of the most open and welcoming and mild-mannered and temperate and kind people I know in life are very religious people. And that's why I pin down on the word fundamentalist. And, and the word fundamentalist uh, in fundamentalist religious circles, a fundamentalist is often somebody who lacks any kind of existential humility. They have got it figured out. Uh, they have an extreme amount of existential certainty about who God is, the nature of God, the, of what God wants the world to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're beginning to see in a lot of our secular political struggles is this kind of absolute existential certainty. And you see it all the time. I mean, it's the business model of Twitter to have people sharing at volume uh, their existential certainty and sort of trying to drown out or suppress those voices that don't share their point of view. Um, and I thought it would be good as in talking to Tom to sort of show a little bit about how we, how we got here. Um, and it doesn't have, it's not everything to do with politics. You're going to read a lot of things. You'll probably, you've probably read, read a lot of stuff over the years that say, okay, well, here was the political moment where things got bad. Say, let's say it was the, um, let's say it was the Gingrich speaker when Newt Gingrich became speaker and he learned to sort of weaponize C-SPAN in the, in the months and years before he became, became speaker, or was it 
Clinton's impeachment where things became extreme, you know, much more partisan? Or was it the rise of the Tea Party? Or was it not until the 2016 campaign? We keep going back to these political moments. And what I would say is these political moments, which the data shows, if you look at Pew studies on polarization, for example, show steadily increasing polarization since the 90s, these political moments reflect cultural trends. And I'm just going to highlight three cultural trends. Um, one is the big sort. Uh, the other one is something called that Cass Sunstein has articulated, which I think is one of the most important concepts. If you take nothing from anything I say at all today, remember this. It's called the law of group polarization. And the third factor is not the Overton window, but Overton windows, plural. So I'll just briefly go through each one of these three things. And, and Tom, I don't know how we want to do the Q&A. If you want to interrupt and ask me some questions, please, or, you know, happy to take questions throughout. I think you're, I, I think we'll keep you on this great role you're on, and then we'll do questions at the end. <laughs> okay. So the big sort is a term I didn't invent. It comes, and I didn't invent any of these terms, by the way. So I'm, I'm just melding them together. It's a book from the early 2000s that indicates that Americans are beginning to live around and congregate in like-minded areas of the country. We are clustering. We are walling off from each other. We're cocooning. Um, and you see this in a lot of the data that has steadily sh showed that more and more and more and more Americans live in something called uh, a landslide county. A landslide county is any county where one party or the other usually wins by 20 points or more. So what this means is, as a general rule, we just don't live around people who disagree with us as much as we used to. Uh, we, by choice, and then the choice begins to get its own momentum, uh, we now live around people who agree with us. We live around people who share our values. Uh, just to give you an example, I'm one of the few uh, like national columnists who lives in a very red America. My precinct in 2016, I lived in rural Tennessee, voted for Trump. I think the ratio was 72% Trump and maybe 18% Hillary and 10% other. It was decisively Trump. Uh, the precinct I moved to in 2018 is was around 69, 70% Trump is where I live. Um, you can assume if you run into somebody, especially if they're a white voter in my neighborhood, that they're a Trump voter. You just can assume it. It's a fair assumption to make. Um, and that's not unusual. Uh, the share of people that were living in landslide counties in 2016 was the highest since we've been measuring the statistic. So it just keeps building. It gets its own momentum. And so we hear a lot about um, bubbles and we hear a lot about cocoons, but we don't really hear a lot about, we kind of have this sense that it means something. Like there's something meaningful about that in our politics. And there's something meaningful about living mainly around like-minded people. And that's where this Cass Sunstein concept comes in called the law of group polarization. And this is so key. This is so key. So what the law says is that when people of like mind gather, people with a common point of view gather, the common expression of their shared point of view gets ever more extreme. Uh, let me make it concrete. Like, let's say a whole group of us got together and we're all gun rights supporters. It means we want fewer restrictions on guns and we all get together for dinner. At the end of that dinner, we're more likely to want, we're more likely to support gun rights than when the dinner started. We feed on each other, we reinforce and vice versa. If you're more, 
if it's a group of like-minded people are getting together and you're in favor of fewer immigration restrictions while you feed on each other, you're going to become even more opposed to immigration restrictions. It's just the way human dynamics work. And what Sunstein said is you can even begin to reach a point where there's such a cascade of reinforcement in our point of view that you can, by the end of the deliberation, you, the group can be more extreme than the most extreme individual was at the start of it. That's how powerful this is. And I'm not going to go into all of the supporting social science, but you begin to see how people, when the like-minded people gather, they get more and more extreme. Um, so do we have communities like that that are extremely like-minded? Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll pick, up a, uh, pick up a couple of threads. One, connecting back to the big sort. So one, we have... Um, white evangelicals. So the, the famous white evangelical vote that went for Trump, 81%, 81% voted for Trump. That's a pretty monolithic voting block. That's extremely monolithic. And this is a monolithic voting, voting block that is not evenly spread throughout the United States of America. It's clustered in specific uh, suburban and exurban parts in rural parts of the United States. So that 81%, so you can sit there and say, of course, these guys, um, are going to be subject to the law of group polarization. And, and sometimes I can see it with my own eyes. People who are very reluctant Trump in 2016 are now very zealous Trump in 2020 and certainly were until the pandemic began to crack and fray some of this uh, uni universal support. So that even as Trump, for example, and continued to engage in conduct that would shock the conscience of a lot of these evangelical voters four, five, six years ago, if they'd seen other politicians do it, this group polarization this group deliberation and support of Trump was creating greater and deeper and deeper loyalty. So that's white evangelicals. Well, you can go to urban areas in the U.S., whether it's Manhattan, San Francisco, Center City, Philly, Washington, D.C., um, in fact, multiple boroughs in New York City that are more politically monolithic than the white evangelical church. They're more than 81% voting for a Democrat. And so what you have are some of these competing bubbles, these immense communities of Americans that are monolithically in support of one side or the other. And as they are monolithically in support of one side or the other, are growing more extreme in their political positions. And you see this in a lot of the data, again, as well. It used to be the case that if you're going to look at American ideology, you would have that classic U-shape, that bell curve. Uh, where you had the vast majority there in the middle and you had these small minorities on the edges. But again, some of this Pew polarization data shows that those minorities on the edges are pulling that bell curve so that it, it's not exactly, you know, a, a, it's not a U, but it's moving more like just a straight line where there is still a substantial middle, but what was the extremes is also growing in numbers. Now, what's, what's disturbing about that, and this is, again, part of the law of group polarization, is that our perception of the extremism of our opponents is growing even faster than the actual extremism of our opponents. So one of the things that we're, we are, especially those of us who are most prone to engage in, in political media, are often most wrong about our political opponents' beliefs. We believe they're far more extreme than they really are even though they are growing more extreme. Okay, so that's, 
the big sort, that's the law of group polarization. And let's end the last part was Overton windows, plural. Um, the Overton window is a concept coined by a um, senior, uh, senior executive in a conservative think tank, um, the Mackinac Center in Michigan. And essentially is defined as the window of acceptable political discourse. Um, and one of the, and, and according to his theory, the real battle, um, ideological battle, wasn't between over time, Republican versus Democrat. It was over the where the window was. If you could move the window far enough left or far enough right, you could lose elections and still you're winning in the culture. Here's a very good example. So in the 1990s, uh, a lot of people, you know, conservatives now who look back on the Clinton administration, they look back on it with bitterness. But in in many ways, is the most social conservative administration of modern times. I mean, think about this. They passed uh, the Clinton administration. Bill Clinton signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. He signed the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Person Act, which essentially gave special protections to religious use of land. He signed the Defense of Marriage Act, and he implemented Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Not one, not one of those pieces of legislation could make it through Congress now. That's an example of an Overton window moving. So that's an example when conservatives say there has been losses in the culture. A lot of what they're referring to is sort of a moving of the Overton window. But is there one Overton window anymore when the two sides are beginning beginning to separate? I'd submit in many areas there's not. That in fact, the, the strain has meant that there is a separate range of acceptable, acceptable discourse on the left and on the right. And we see this often most starkly in issues around race. So, for example, if you're in left political discourse and you try to argue that there is no such thing as systemic racism, it's hard for you to have an entree into the conversation. There is a Sort of, there is a shared set of presumptive beliefs about the state of race relations in America that's often centered around specific language and specific terms, such as, for example, systemic racism, which is a term with an academic definition that an awful lot of people on the left understand and agree with. And it's sort of the entry ticket into discourse. Now, on the right, if you said, if you try to argue that there is systemic racism and a right leaning community, you're often not going to get a hearing at all because the assumption is that that is a left-wing concept, systemic racism. It marks you as a member of the left-wing tribe to buy into it. And so your entry into serious political conversation on the right cannot use the language of the left. Why? Because we have the two separate Overton windows. Our positions on gun rights in politically active communities are another good example for that. Um, on when I was, you know, in 1986, I like to, I don't know why, but 19, the, maybe because some of the best data I've seen pegs us to 1986. In 1986, a very small minority of states in this country uh, allowed a person to walk outside of the, their home with a, with a handgun. The vast, vast majority of states in the union had a rule that said uh, they were either no issue, you cannot get a, ca a carry permit, or they were may issue. You can only get a carry permit if you get permission from the government. By now, that's just completely flipped. It's only a tiny 
there are no no issue states. There's a tiny minority of states that are may issue. And the vast majority are either shall issue, you're entitled to a carry permit, or what are called constitutional carry, where the Second Amendment is your carry permit. And in right-leaning spaces, if you're going to come in and you're going to question that, that's outside the Overton window. Another way of describing the Overton window is political correctness. What are the politically correct perspectives within any given community? And we now have, there is no one set, there is no one set uh, of views that is politically correct. I have to, whenever I hear political correctness, I often ask, okay, in which community? <laughs> What's politically correct in which community? So for example, on the left, there is often a tendency to over-racialize issues. On the right, there's a tendency to under-racialize issues. And those are reflections of different forms of political correctness that are often reflections of these different Overton windows. Now, it would be one thing if we were growing more different with different views with equivalent commitments to pluralism, where in other words, okay, Manhattan, you be Manhattan. Franklin, Tennessee, where I am, you be Franklin, Tennessee. We're increasingly different. We don't watch the same sports. We don't watch the same uh, movies. We don't watch the same television. And it's really fascinating. Look at television maps which different shows almost perfectly track the uh, Trump and Hillary voting maps, depending on what the show is. I felt like a real fish out of water because I'm a red stater who watched the ultimate blue state show religiously, which was Game of Thrones. Like the Game of Thrones viewing map tracked the Hillary map. Um, I was less devoted to The Walking Dead, which is the sort of like gory, violent show of the right. And it, it tracks more the, the, the red state uh, voting map. College football tracks red state voting maps. NBA basketball tracks blue state voting maps. So again, all of these factors make us very different. And it's one thing if we're equally committed to pluralism, but all of this is occurring at the same time that we have increased centralization of the federal government, increased centralization of power, and not just in the federal government, because that would, that would imply that Congress is part of this. No, Congress is abdicating. It's much more in the person, in a person, in a president. And, uh, and that is leading to extreme amounts of tension. And one of the reasons why the, you have the escalating rhetoric surrounding every presidential election. This is the most important election of our lifetime. We've always heard that. Everyone is the most important. It's flawed reasoning except this, every election, because the ever-increasing power of the chief executive is electing the most power, powerful peacetime president in American history. Uh, so each election cycle has an escalating stakes in the sense of the power of the person being elected, whether or not historically it's most important election or not. So all of those things are gathering together, centralization in the face of increased diversity uh, increased anxiety over opposing opposite sides, real and imagined extremism. Um, and in many ways, and this is the last thing, you see a decreasing commitment to uh, liberalism itself, small L liberalism. This was the subject of a huge debate I got into last summer when um, a writer, a, a New York Post editorial editor, a guy named uh, um, Sarbamari, wrote an article called Against David Frenchism 
and which ignited a huge fight on the right, an intellectual fight on the right. And what is David Frenchism? Aside from a commitment that uh, LeBron James right there is the greatest basketball player of all time, it also includes a um, commitment to that politics should not be treated as war and enmity, that civility and decency are cardinal virtues in life, including politics, and that the classical liberal view, uh, the classical liberalism view of the founders is as relevant today, if not more relevant, as it's as it's ever been. And David, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to interrupt, but but sure. just for our audience, uh, maybe a quick definition of how you define small L liberalism for everybody, just so that there's no confusion. Yeah, yeah. So small L liberalism is a rights based rule of law um, structure where the the uh, one of the principal objectives of the state is the protection of individual liberty. Um, that the state is not that there are that the state itself has profound limits on its power. And that doesn't mean class, small L liberalism doesn't mean small government liberalism. Those, you can be a small L liberal and be for bigger or smaller government, but a small L liberal is going to view a human being as possessing a certain bundle of rights uh, that the state cannot overcome. So essentially, the, the, the way to say in the American experience to express small L liberalism would be the combination of sort of the opening the opening of the Declaration of Independence as mission statement and the combination of the Bill of Rights and the Civil War um, amendments as sort of the enabling documents, as the legal documents. So that's how I would define a short version of how I define small L liberalism. So that's why we are so mad at each other, separate and apart from the most outrageous thing that Newt Gingrich did in 94 or the hypocrisy of, you know, whatever Clinton did in 98 or the uh, anger at, you know, Bush for Patriot Act in 01 and 02, or you can, each side has its list of grievances. Um, but the, the building anger and the building mutual rage and anger is based on something much deeper and more profound than what is really a rather garden variety list of, of political grievances, historically speaking. Anyway, that's, I have monologued enough. <laughs> well, thank you. I think that's, I think you've pointed out the, um, why our organization, No Labels, is so important to be doing what we're doing, even in a, and you mentioned Congress as um, having, um, capitulated is that what you is that would you use? whatever whatever term you want to use for having yeah. completely withdrawn from its constitutional role i'll be content with well we and, and we can have a healthy debate about that we're certainly seeing that we're certainly seeing the congressman that we're working with uh on a daily basis uh, nancy can chime in here but they're they're slugging it out every day trying to get you know get some things done and i think some are more committed than maybe others at that, but um, let's let's go to uh, a couple of questions. Um, we'll start with Bill Galston and then Stamen Ogilvy. If you want to follow uh, Bill, David. Hey, Bill. Yeah. Hey, how are you? I'm uh, good. You you offered us a totally persuasive diagnosis of our current ills. And I bet you know what my next sentence is going to be. Uh, 
here at No Labels, you know, perhaps, you know, our proudest product is a bipartisan group in the House of Representatives called the Problem Solvers. Mm-hmm. That pretty much defines what we're about, you know, coming first coming to a common recognition of what the problems are, and then doing our best to do something about them. So let me just turn that back on you. Uh, you You know, the unwary listener would say that you've offered a totally deterministic account, you know, or, you know, in, in Sartrean terms, no exit. Is there an exit? And if so, what does it look like? Where's the hope in the midst yeah. of this problem? So that's a great question. So th- there's, this is going to sound um, counterintuitive, uh, but there's hope in misery in this sense that um, more in common, I, you know, some of you may f- be familiar with their work. They're, um, they've done a work on the concept called hidden tribes where they, did a lot. They dove into the American electorate and the American population, and they sort of said, "Okay, this is not just a right-left country. There's a lot of nuances in there. Who, who really believes what, and with what intensity?" And and what they found was that the American dialogue is being driven by a relatively small percentage of the population, which shouldn't surprise any of us. I mean, all of us who have who are involved in organizations know that. Often organizations or typically organizations are driven by the most committed minority of the organization. There's this old saying in churches that 20%, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And in my own experience, I found that to be wildly optimistic. It's more like 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. And, and so, well, who are the people who are driving American political discourse? And and what more in common found was it's the people really who truly are sort of on the edges of commitment. It's the disproportionately white, disproportionately um, higher income people who, who view politics as like a virtual hobby. It's just a, in, in, it's a, a part of their life that is, it's a daily, daily part of their life. But they also said that there is a larger group of Americans called an, ex- and they called it the exhausted majority. Uh, was the term that more in common uses, the exhausted majority. Now, what's easy to misunderstand about that exhausted majority doesn't mean they're exhausted moderates. So it's not like they're united by a particular common set of issues, but it's more of a temperament. It's more of a sort of a commitment to a, uh, you know, they might be more, um, for lack of a, they're more politically eclectic, maybe. They might have a, a more interesting mix of ideas. But it's not necessarily the exhausted moderates, but it's an exhausted majority. And that exhausted majority are people who not only uh, don't share a lot of the anger, they also actually have a more accurate, and maybe these two things are related, a more accurate view of their political opponents. And the reason why they do, it seems, is because they just don't spend as much time in media. The people who spent the most time in media, in political media, had the most distorted view of their political opponents. The exhausted majority got its view of politics and their opponents by human interactions, not so much by online engagement. So the short answer to the question is, I think one of the keys to the future is is giving the exhausted majority some renewed energy. 
um, waking up the exhausted majority. And this is this is something that I think it should be a you know a, a project to those who care about polarization. And why did I say in misery lies hope? Um, when people are miserable, they don't like to stay miserable. And there's a sort of a way to deal with that, which is sort of resignation and withdrawal. That's one way to act like to try to to pull yourself completely out of the process. Or another way to deal with misery is to activate and get engaged. And, uh, you know, one of the things about the dispatch that has been incredibly heartening to us is in our commitment to this fact-based reasoning and analysis, we have an incredibly diverse readership. And if you ask them, what is it that you like about us? They will say some of the same things. They'll say, you are committed to trying to figure out what's really going on, no matter whose ox is gored. You're committed to civil discourse. You're not like the, the outrage bait. You're not like the clickbait. You're just different. And we're beginning to see uh, Yasha Monk, a good friend of mine, Bill knows, um, started his own outlet called Persuasion and had, you know, just with one or two tweets, suddenly had, uh, you know, 15,000 people sign up. Now, it sounds like a drop in the ocean, and it is a drop in the ocean, but it's 15, it's not your normal 15,000 cross section of people. It's some, many of the leaders of American discourse sign up to this sort of joint left right issue or a joint left-right publication that is trying to find another way to communicate outside of this outrage cycle. So I think what you have is you have fertile soil for change. You have fertile soil and you don't, and it's just not fully activated with a, an exception. And um, if you look at the Democratic presidential nomination process, um, in many ways, sort of Joe Biden ran is like, I'm, it's, it's just going to be normal again. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a return to normalcy style campaign um, that's often hidden in a lot of the sturm and drang of the, you know, the, the exposure given to violent protests here or Trump tweets there um, that, you know, there's, this was a campaign run from the Democratic Party which in many ways prevailed precisely because it was not and in kept intentionally pointing out that it was not occupying an extreme place. And so that's a contrast uh, to Trump, who often quite sort of ran as however much you think this other, anyone else from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio or anyone else can fight, I'll fight harder. And the interesting thing about Trump is this wasn't I'll be more conservative than anybody else. It was, I'll fight more than anybody else. It was this commitment to the, the combat. And so it's going to be an interesting contrast in 2020, where you're going to have somebody who ran specifically different in ideolo ideology and tone from the extremes of his party against somebody who ran and defined the tonal extreme of his party and has continued to define the tonal extreme of his party since. So that's going to be a very, very interesting contest, yeah. I think. Thank you. Um, you know, <clears throat> just to further evidence that I, I feel like we have some shared DNA, uh, you may not know this, but Hidden Tribes, I think, should be required reading for anybody involved in, uh, in No Labels. And it was probably one of the first things that was sent to me. And it's, it is a fascinating report that uh, I, I wish more people knew about. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, and then, Stamen, you're up next. And I'd also want to remind 
uh, and after statement, we have Tim, and then I let's, we do have a, a little bit of time to just talk about the media's role in this. But go ahead, Stamen. Thank you, Tom. David, uh, going a little deeper on uh, Bill's question, let's talk about some specifics. We know that it is awfully easy and progressively easier to stay in the cocoon and talk to only people who with whom we agree. But how about these three things, your reaction to them? Uh, number one would be mandatory service, uh, again, reinstated, whether military or so that at a young, impressionable age, we all get to know the other rather than being remote from them. Uh, secondly, uh, housing policies that uh, assure more integration of uh, different communities and less uh, walled off life experience from others. And third, I would say uh, a little more, I'll use the word indoctrination, in which our teaching of history returns to one in which we understand there were flaws, but great people have been the movers of history uh, that John Locke wrote uh, brilliantly and the founders of our nation picked up on ways to make uh, a political organization that really appealed to the best, the better angels of people and was efficient. Uh, so in each of those, whether it be mandatory service, housing, uh, or uh, a better job of orchestrating the myths on which all of our young people, uh, myths is the wrong word, uh, a shared history that we can all get comfortable with be excited about and want to preserve. Those three things, what would you uh, say about specific strategies in those areas? Um, so so first, let me say something very positive about shared experiences. Um, and this is something that, you know, I'm sure Admiral McRaven could wax far more eloquent about than me. But, you know, I had eight years in the Army Reserve. I had a year active duty in Iraq and many other uh, active duty assignments other than that as well. And you know, all of this cliche that you see about, you know, here's your, here's the platoon and you've got like techs from Dallas and you've got, you know, Joe from Brooklyn and you've got the, you know, this cross section. It's kind of true. It's not as true as it used to be because now um, there's disproportionate recruitment from military fam pre-existing military families and from the South. So it's not quite as true as it used to be, but there really is something powerful in that connection from across all of the geographic and racial and ethnic and religious divides that occurs, united by a common purpose and service in the military. Um, but that has also given me sort of a caution about sort of viewing some of these things as a panacea because there is a unique purpose. There is a unique common bond that occurs uh, amongst people who are the tra either training for and engaging in combat. That's a lot harder to replicate in other kinds of enterprises and activities there is a there is a uh, uh, a there is a single goal that focuses the mind about as as sharply as anything can focus the mind um and that is that the shared experience of combat or the shared experience of preparing for combat and i think that that is a that is one of the it's not just taking a bunch of people from a different backgrounds and plopping them into the same place um because Colleges and universities have been trying to do that uh, for a long, long time. I mean, I served on the admissions committee at Cornell Law School, and so I, I saw how the sausage was made. And 
one of the things that we really tried hard to do was like, if you had all other things being equal, if you had the 34th person coming in from North Jersey, we might want the first person from South Alabama. And I know for sure, like my own entry into Harvard Law School, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I got in in part on the sort of like the redneck diversity initiative. Uh, here I am from rural Kentucky, born in South Alabama. Uh, and I, you know, it was a, it was an eye-opening experience for me. So we have had some important institutions, educational institutions that have been trying to consider these common or putting together people from wildly different backgrounds into the same common experience with mixed results. Um, I, I do, I am a, I'm a firm believer that a common experience can bind people together. Um, where I sometimes have a little bit of skepticism is I think that if we reach a point where the political process would reach such sort of consensus that it would plow through all of the uh, objections to major social change, like national service would be major social change to implement such a change, that we made it already in a large degree solved a lot of our problems. Um, but yeah, I, you know, in concept, I say common experiences and real relationships with people across the aisle make a very big difference. Um, I also think leadership makes a very, very big difference. And a, one of the things that even absent national service, that people are in the leader class of Americans, whether they're cultural or religious or political, is intentionally cultivate those relationships. And I think that has a trickle-down effect because a lot of the negative polarization, quite frankly, and I'm much more cons uh, familiar with it on the right than I am from the left, is trickling down from the leader class on the right, the media leader class, the political leader class, is telling it's their listeners, telling their followers, this is what they're really like. And that message is relentless, it's constant, and if you have a leader class that is delivering a different message, even short of some of these massive social and political changes, I think you can begin to make a difference. And how about those uh, schooling experiences of our young people related to a history in, on which we can coalesce our enthusiasm? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's, I think that. Um, the the difficulty there is you have to coalesce around reality. And the reality of the US, I wrote this long thing for National Review about how is it that you can recognize the, the serious consequences of white supremacy at the same time, including slavery and Jim Crow, and then also many of the you know, much of the oppression delivered to other marginalized communities, Native Americans. Uh, Chinese immigrants at the turn of the century, at the 20th century, I mean, you, the list goes on, and still inculcate a love for this country and an appreciation of the greatness of this country. And can you do both at the same time? Can you deal with a reality at the same time that you are uh, inculcating an appreciation for the country? I do think you can. I do think you can. Um, I don't, I'm skeptical about the ability of a top-down curriculum to do it. Um, I think it's, it's very, very hard, which is not to say it's not worth thinking hard about whether it's possible. I just think it's really, really hard. You know, the, the good news is, or the bad news is I might have to 
cut that question off. The good news is we got a lot of people that have a lot of other questions. So <laughs> you're you're uh, got a lot of listeners here. Tim Sloan, you're up. Thanks, Tom David. Appreciate your uh, comments, especially about Game of Thrones and and uh, The Walking Dead. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm part of No Labels because I didn't like either of those shows. <laughs> uh, the, the, but, but could you could you talk a little bit more, just given our focus on working with the Problem Solvers Caucus and developing uh, something similar in the Senate? Could you talk a little bit more about the abdication of responsibility to the legislative branch and and why you think that's occurred? Uh, uh, I mean, I can I can see good arguments either way, but I'd be interested in a little bit more depth. Yeah. So um, first. I'm firmly of the belief that there are the three branches of government were not intended to be co-equal. That the legislature was intended to be supreme. And how do we know this? Because the legislature can actually fire the president and it can it can override vetoes and it can fire any justice of the Supreme Court. So, you know, while they can check each other and there's certain checks on Congress and there's checks on the uh, on the judiciary and there's checks on the president, ultimately. Ultimately, the, the branch of government closest to the people had the ability to fire the president, to fire the chief justice if it so chooses. And But I think that the founders believed that there would be more institutional loyalty amongst members of Congress than there actually proved to be, or more institution, a, a desire to protect the institution of Congress as opposed to the institution of the party that the member of Congress comes from. And so you take all of these things that I talked about, the big sort, group polarization, et cetera, and you want and add on top of that a healthy dash of gerrymandering, and you have a situation where a, many, many, many members of Congress, their main threat to their continued presence in the institution is from their right flank if they're conservative or from their left flank if they're progressive. And they... Uh, in, there is a strong disincentive towards compromise, a strong disincentive. In fact, arguably, it was the Gang of Eight on the on the right side of the spectrum that doomed Marco Rubio more than anything else. This attempt to compromise on on immigration that doomed him more than anything else. And so, what ends up happening, to borrow the fra a phrase from my um, colleague Jonah Goldberg, is you end up with a parliament of pundits. Not everybody, of course, but um, you end up with a, uh, a group of members who are often competing to get the Fox hit or the MSNBC hit, who they will write letters that have no sort of effect in the real world other than to generate a news cycle. You know, ex-congressman writes a letter to the NBA commissioner. What does that do? You know, it, it generates a news cycle, for example. And so we have Congress is imprisoned in many ways by these overarching um, these overarching trends that make them more in danger from their extreme flank than from the exhausted majority. The exhausted majority doesn't present a danger to most of them for not compromising. And so that creates a real problem for which there's no simple, easy suggestion to get out of it. Like you can do something about gerrymandering and that'll help, but that doesn't end the big sort. Um, and then what has happened? What has happened is the Supreme Court has stepped into the breach which just makes everything worse. <laughs> um, and I'll explain to you how the Supreme Court has done it. And I don't actually blame the Supreme Court as much as I blame, again, Congress. 
So if I'm, let's say I'm interested in a social issue, like free speech on campus or LGBT rights or gun rights, or you name it, um, I can spend weeks, months, years lobbying for major legislation at the national level and go nowhere, just go nowhere. But if I file a legal complaint, the judge has to answer it. The judge has to respond. A representative doesn't have to respond. Congress doesn't have to respond, but a judge has to either grant the relief or deny the relief. And if the judge grants or denies, whatever the losing side can appeal. And the Court of Appeals has to respond. Well, you do that enough and you begin to get what's called the circuit split, the conflict in law between two courts of appeal which is intolerable because we don't have one set of federal laws for part of the country and another set for another part of the country. So then the Supreme Court has to get involved. And then you get into this sort of horse trading that you often have at the Supreme Court because there are not that many sort of what you would call jurisprudential philosophical purists on the court. So you get inevitably into the kind of compromising and horse trading that you used to have at the legislative level. And we saw a lot of that this last term. So that exacerbates the problem because the Supreme Court is the most removed from the democratic process. And so, you know, what, it, what it's going to take is some real courage in the House and the Senate, quite frankly. Uh, it's going to take some real courage to be able to say no more. You know, some of the, 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 the process of compromise was actually and has been one of the things that's kept this country get together from its inception. Um, the Constitution is a complicated series of compromises that it's worked pretty darn well. And we, if we punt away compromise, if compromise isn't possible and the only real compromises you see are at a judicial branch that's most removed from the people, that puts a real strain on the system. And the good news is I, I have talked to a number of members and senators and people on both sides of the aisle who understand this is a problem. They get it. They get it's a problem. You guys work with them all the time. They get it. Um, but there is not yet the sufficient numbers or momentum to break out of that, um, you know, to break, to break out of the logjam, uh, which is why I, I have the sort of the short to medium term prediction of it's just going to get worse. All right. Well, um, thank you. Uh, Michael Falcon, you, you're up. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, David, for taking the time. Um, I love your pieces, and I read a lot um, from a former colleague of your National Review, Tom Nichols, uh, who I had on a, a, a call regarding his book, uh, The Death of Expertise. Right. And one of the things that I've seen for a while, and I've seen it under both Democratic and Republican institutions, so never quite like what we have now, is a destruction or what I would call anti-institutionalism. We're almost left and right um, anti many of the things that I would pin American exceptionalism to, whether that's uh, our educational structures or federal, trust in federal government in and of itself, um, large companies, small companies. Uh, it, it just it feels not just polarized, but that we're doing real damage to institutions and trust. And I'm interested if you have, have thoughts on that and sort of this post-truth environment of where, you know, I'm going to let my conviction, you know, trump your expertise. Um, you know, that's a that's a great observation. Um, 
very few institutions have consensus trust left. I mean, the American military is one of the last institutions that has consensus trust left, for example. Um, and I would, gosh, um, Tom, I should send it to you because I can't remember off the top of my head who wrote it, but there was this really fascinating article in, in the New Republic that says what we're encountering is not so much, we, yes, we're seeing the death of expertise that Tom, or mistrust of experts that Tom has talked about, but it's not, it's so much the one side says, I, um, I trust experts, and the other side says, I, trust, I do not trust experts at all. It's more like one side says, I trust consensus experts, and the other side, side says, I trust dissent, ex, dissenting experts. And so, for example, in the COVID crisis, if you've paid much attention to uh, a lot of right-wing media, you will see people sort of rear up that you haven't heard before, but have some credential. It's not like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Bob from Michigan, and uh, I, I have no experience in this matter, but here's my Medium post, and it's going to go viral. It's been much more like, uh, this is a dissenting epidemiologist, or this is a dissenting former writer of the New York Times. You're also seeing, often seeing a, a clash between consensus and dissent, where there's not so much a truth-seeking enterprise going on as is there's a priors reinforcing inter exercise going on. And you can almost always find someone who fashions themselves an expert that can reinforce your priors. Um, and you see this in the masking debate all over the place. Um, you know, what, what is there to, what can there be done about this? This is where, um, this is where we can move into what Tom was talking about with the media. Um, to a large degree, uh, there is the, the media marketplace is such that there are extreme dis disincentives towards gatekeeping versus cheerleading. And what and and uh, a lot of folks have said the media has become partisan. I, I think that that actually understates the problem a bit, especially when dealing with dedicated part like the the most right wing media, the talk radio, primetime Fox, uh, certain specific outlets, and you often see it in in some of the quote unquote wokest outlets on the left. It isn't even partisanship so much as it's almost like lawyering. The difference between a partisan and a lawyer is a partisan has a loyalty to an institution, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. The lawyer has a loyalty to a client, to a, to a personality. Um, and what you're seeing an awful lot in, in, you know, and again, my ecosystem I'm most familiar with is right-wing media, is essentially lawyering for a person, lawyering for President Trump, taking whatever fact pattern exists and doing what lawyers do, making the best argument from that fact pattern that they can for their client. And to me, that's a, a problem beyond partisanship. Uh, and, but it's where we are with a, a critical mass of the media. And it's one of the reasons why people on both extremes are most wrong about their political opponents. If all you ever listened to was a prosecuting attorney, for example, you would have an incredible distorted view of the defendant. If all you ever listened to was a defense attorney, you would have an incredibly distorted view of the state's case. And, and that's where we are as a lawyering media. But 
again, I'm pointing out big, big, big trends for which there are stirrings of dissent from. Um, Yasha Monk put it very, very well in a podcast I listened to with um, Ezra Klein. And he said, one of the things that has to be done is we have to create fighting institutions for liberalism. Um, and I like that phrase. Uh, if, if a large chunk of the media is drifting almost into lawyering for a particular cause, what you need to do is create competing institutions, fighting institutions, in Yasha's phrase, for small l liberalism itself. Um, and, and that's beginning to happen, um, not at large scale, but it's beginning to happen. And every time it's happening of late, those who are doing it are seeing a far greater demand for their services than they thought they had when they would, when they started. Just to take okay. our small little pirate ship, we now have 350% of the subscribers we projected to have by the end of the year. And it's July. So there is a, there is a demand for an alternative approach. And um, so that's, that's a seed of hope that I see. Terrific. I think we have time for uh, one more question. Okay, how about Mike Precob? Yes, thank you. Um, one comment and a question. I'll try and be brief. In uh, I'm working with my local congresswoman who's helping with, with my project. <clears throat> and I met with her in January, and uh, she's a Democrat. Um, she said that the main issue for this election is going to be healthcare. Now, when COVID-19 became, it became quite apparent that this is serious, I remember saying, this is a problem for everybody. I don't think this is gonna become a political issue. Hmm. <laughs> it is now the, it's overcome healthcare for that's, that is now going to be the political issue for the campaign, which shows how much I know. Um, but my question was really this, do you see a possibility, not, not today, but where we could have a leader who could become elected, who would actually bridge the gap and actually, you know, um, decrease the polarization that we see? Is something like, like that electable? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to radically depart from the background pessimism and end with a note of optimism. And the note of optimism is that if you look through recent American history, one of the things that you have seen is that America, the American people often correct an error by moving towards an opposite. Okay, so if you came out of the, you know, the Watergate era, where you had, you know, this imperial presidency, a level of, you know, unbelievable level of corruption, um, level of turmoil, huge, intense amounts of dishonesty coming from the executive branch. Yes, you had Gerald Ford sort of as a bridge, but then the American people turned to a Baptist Sunday school teacher from Georgia who walked on his inaugural parade. Like, that's a big contrast from Richard Nixon, just, just to, to give you an example of how the American people will often turn on a dime and say, I don't want to do that again. Like, that is not what I want. Now, the, the difficulty is we have a primary system that often prevents that sort of consensus uh, American view from being heard until you're served up with um, 
actual, you know, candidates that that would not have made it that that do not reflect that sort of consensus uh, rejection of the prior president. But I would even say to an extent, I mean, it's hard to pick a person more opposite from Barack Obama in temperament in every conceivable way than Donald Trump. And and look, I would say this about um, the Biden campaign. I think some of these guys realize that and they realize that, well, one of the ways that they can win is by tacking to the opposite direction of Trump in temperament and um, in especially in temperament with Biden really emphasizing how empathetic he is as a human being. And he has a life story that really, you know, you talk to people who who know him, who go through personal crises, they will say time and time again that Joe Biden is one of the more empathetic people that I've ever known. And I think they're very smartly emphasizing that aspect just as a matter of, without getting partisan in this conversation, just as a matter of political analysis. But I do think there is a record of the American people saying in response to a miserable situation, no more, no, we don't want this anymore. And the marriage of man and moment, we've been very blessed. We've been very fortunate in our history to kind of have a, a marriage of a man and moment. Sometimes maybe the moment help makes the man. I mean, we've had a, we had a marriage of man and moment in the Civil War. We had marriage of man and moment in, you know, in the crises of, uh, around the Second World War. We have, um, there has been, in, in, throughout American history, a, a consistent pattern of that. Marriage of man and moment with the first president of the United States, with George Washington. Um, and so I, I, I do feel like with the combination of an exhausted majority that does exist, this latent sense of pent-up demand for an alternative, when presented with the alternative, I think there is a, a match of person and market for that person. I do think it's possible. Uh, the thing that makes me discouraged is that the process that puts a person into that posi potential position is rife with all of the dysfunction I've spent the last hour talking about. <laughs> well, uh, I tell you what, it's been fantastic. And before I turn it over uh, to Bill Galston to close us out, first of all, David, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it, uh, it did not, it exceeded my personal expectations. And I want to, I do want to make a shameless plug. If you, if you're not familiar with the dispatch, uh, it's a great, it's a great outlet for like-minded folks like us. And, and I couldn't help but um, answer Mike's, uh, just chime in on Mike's question. If you haven't read the, uh, the book by John Meachin, The Soul of America in Search of Our Better Angels, it should give you some uh, comfort that what you're thinking about has happened in time and time again. So I'll turn it over to Bill for, uh, for a wrap. Well, David, uh, you've been a model of the kind of public figure uh, that the country needs and that No Labels has been trying to assemble and encourage now for, for a decade. Uh, we need a lot more voices like yours. Uh, and I, I note that you were willing to risk shedding your blood uh, in the Middle East and you've been willing to risk shedding political blood here at home on behalf of decency and civility. Uh, 
And the fight that you got into last year was awe-inspiring in its ferocity. And I found myself very happy that I was not you in that circumstance, even though you acquitted yourself nobly. At any rate, uh, you're an inspiring model, and we hope very much that you'll be willing to continue this dialogue with us because the forces, the forces of civility and compromise need all the help they can get now more than ever. Uh, it's, it's our work. It's your work. Let's work together. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. In a recent article, David French says American politics is dominated by a new fundamentalism. A fundamentalist, he explains, often has no humility or uncertainty, and that's what we see now in politics. He says the problem is made worse by three big trends. One, the big sort. Americans have begun in the last few decades to intentionally live around like-minded neighbors. Two, the law of group polarization. When like-minded people gather, they reinforce those shared opinions to an extreme. And three, the expanding Overton window. The Overton window is a concept that explains the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at any given time. Now, there are two separate windows for either party, in the case of many issues, making compromise impossible. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.